0: This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast.
1: Welcome to another packed show. I'm Seb Lozier, and this week we bring you an exclusive chat with one of the leading American players on tour. Earlier in the week, I was joined on the line by Sam Querrey. We talked about the cancellation of some of his favourite tournaments, including Indian Wells, Miami, and Wimbledon. We discussed how he's keeping one of the game's great serves ticking over in these times of lockdown. We spoke about his work on the player council and how that all works, including at the moment. And most importantly, about life as a new dad. We also hear from two players this week who started the year in great form. Canada's Vasek Pospisil talks about his injury comeback. And Tennis Sangren looks back on what was an incredible Australian Open. But first, to Sam Query, who as a new father is putting a positive spin on the lack of tennis.
2: Look, the one good thing what's happening right now is that I get to spend every day with with my new new little son. Where normally I would have been traveling and probably missed a handful of weeks at the beginning of his life. So it's been a fun experience so far. My wife and I are both so happy and thrilled, and um, you know it's great to get to be here for the first. You know, it looks like it could be the first six months of his life every day. Yeah,
1: I mean, what what are the practicalities of having a newborn? in a lockdown world at the
2: moment. Is it difficult? You know, honestly, no, because I I think in a way, mostly for my wife, our life wouldn't have been changed that much anyway. You can't really do much with the newborn. So, um, you know, our days pretty much consist of watching him eat, sleep, poop, changing diapers. And then we go on a couple neighborhood walks during the day. And honestly, that probably would have been what we would have done a lot of anyway without this pandemic. And hopefully, um, you know, this will allow me and Ford is our son's name to kind of create a special bond with each other.
1: Talk to me about Vegas at the moment, Sam. I mean, it's it's always a slightly surreal place to come to as a tourist. I've been a number of times. Um, it must be very strange at the moment.
2: Yeah. Well, I was actually, I was in Vegas. My wife and I are, are in California right now. I was going to come over here and practice uh, before all this kind of started. So we actually stayed here just so we're a little closer to my parents. But, you know, like I I do spend a ton of time in Vegas. We live there a lot of the year. My dad actually still works in Vegas. So it, it is strange, you know, a place that has five million hotel rooms to have them all shut down and have it, uh, you know, a city that has so much life, similar to like a New York City, 24-7 really, just have nothing there is really strange.
1: I wanted to ask you just very briefly about your little boy. I think you said his name was Ford. Um now, is he going to be a tennis player? It's it's such an obvious question, I have to ask it. But is sports and tennis going to be a a big
2: thing for, for him, for you? You know, he can do whatever he wants. If he wants to play tennis, that's great. I'll support him and help him out. Selfishly, I hope he does something else so I don't have to watch tennis. I can get a break from it. I would like to go watch him and help him do something else but you know what if he if he likes having a racket in his hand and he's happy I'm gonna be his biggest supporter and help him as much as I can
1: what were your parents like i mean how how did you get into tennis and how much of a big role did did they play looking back
2: so I grew up in northern California in a city called santa Rosa and my parents and we moved, we moved to a house there and I was probably five years old and there was a tennis and swim club down the street from the house and so my parents joined it just to Meet friends and kind of be a part of the neighborhood. Neither of them played tennis, but they they kind of took it up a little bit. Then when they joined the club, and when I was five or so, I used to go to the club for summer camp. And you would you know you would play tennis, then you would go have lunch, then you play hide and seek, then you play tag, then you would go play football. And so you kind of that's where I got my start. Just at kind of the summer camps at this club. The club was called Lock cantera in Northern California, and I just kind of took the tennis. I was good at it, and you know here I am. 27 years later still playing. When does it
1: become obvious to I guess the young Sam query that okay, this is gonna be my living this is how I'm gonna spend my my life was there a was there one moment
2: maybe not one moment but kind of a course of about three months when I was 18 I was gonna go play in college at USC and the the few months before college I won three challengers and then won a couple matches and some tour events. And It was really kind of at that time where I knew, okay, I'm good enough to compete with with the best players in the world. I'm I'm young. I've done well, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go to college, and I'm going to become a professional and join the tour and and really put my heart and soul into it.
1: And how tough was that at first, or did you get a really quick break?
2: Yeah, you know, honestly, I got a quick break, like you're like like you said, and you know, fortunately, I won those challengers. I won some matches in tour events and I was then awarded a wild card from the USTA into the Australian Open. They kind of have a swap with Australia, and I made the third round. And relatively quickly, I was ranked 80 in the world. And, um, you know, at that point, you're. it really made me feel good. Like, all right, I made the right decision. I'm in the top 100. I can play all the tournaments. I'm one of the guys now. And so that was really helpful for me for my confidence, I think. You know, I think if I would have Lingered around two, three hundred for a few years. You probably would have started second guessing yourself. But the fact that I made that quick jump uh, made me feel really good about the decision that I made.
1: And you know, the rest is history. I guess you know you've been well as high as eleven in the world, and um, you know, won countless events on the tour. Let Let me just ask you quickly about what's happened recently with the tour. Were you due to play in Indian Wells or or because of Ford were you um, were you not going to play? And, you know, what were you doing literally as the Indian Wells tournament was cancelled?
2: I was going to play. That was going to be my first tournament. I had played the Australian Open and then I hadn't played a tournament since then because Ford was born. I was home with my wife. And so Indian Wells was kind of going to be my first tournament back after six weeks off. And so I was down in Palm Springs with my wife, with Ford with my mom, with my mother-in-law, father-in-law, you know, we had rented a house down there, we're getting ready to go. And then, you know, I think that was, it was Sunday when the event was canceled. And, uh, you know, we kind of all remember thinking like, wow, that seems like a little bit of an overreaction. There's only one case, like, and then sure enough, two days later, you know, the NBA's canceled. Everything just got canceled. And so that kind of was made us all think, okay, I think, I think the tournament made the right decision there. And they were kind of the, you know, they probably don't really get the credit they deserve. for They were the first, I feel like, major sporty event to really put their foot down and say, look, this is this is too dangerous, we need to cancel. And now, obviously, a handful of other tournaments have had to make that call.
1: And how long did you stick around in, in Indian Wells or did you leave straight away? And what did most players do in your experience?
2: I stayed another week. We had rented an Airbnb that we already checked into. It. I couldn't get a refund. And so we kind of treated it, we treated it as if like it was a little vacation almost. Um, and, you know, the desert's always nice. We had this beautiful house with our family. We we had packed up the car with all this baby gear. So we kind of just said, let's stay here for five days, which we did. And, you know, some players hung around for a couple days to kind of see what was going to happen. Because at that point, we, we weren't sure if Miami was going to get canceled yet. The early rumblings were, okay, Miami's going to still go on as planned. So a lot of players, those next few days were we're staying there, we're sticking around. And then once Miami got cancelled, which might have been three days later, it turned into a ghost town. I actually went to the site one day, the site was closed down, there was no players there, you had no access to anything. So I think at that point, everyone left to go back to wherever they were from.
1: What's the day to day been like for you kind of since then? I know the lockdown has been kind of gradual, but. I mean, now, what can you do? What kind of place are you living in? Have you got outdoor space? Have you, uh, you know, can you get out? Can you do fitness? Can you, can you hit a tennis ball?
2: Yeah, you know, I, look, I haven't hit a tennis ball in a couple of weeks, which is fine. Um, but yeah, fortunately, you know, we, we do live in a house here. Uh, we've got a backyard. We've got a really nice neighborhood. We can go outside and take walks and runs. You know, it's easy to keep distance away from people, you know, but it's tough. You're re- you're restricted, even though you're in a, a nice house and a nice neighborhood. You do feel like you're a, a prisoner a little bit, and it's every day's kind of a mental battle. And I'm, you know, I'm I have a Peloton that I do, and I do workouts in the backyard. But you know, it, it is tough. I find it's tough to stay motivated when you don't 100 percent know when you're going to start back up. I know right now we're canceled through Wimbledon, and things can start back up July 15th. I think everyone kind of is a little skeptical. We, I, I'm the. I hope that happens, but um, you know, if If not, it kind of goes through another month and another month. So it's, it's hard to put together a schedule and plan for that. But I do feel like when we do get back on, on track, if we say, Hey, look, it looks like things are getting better. We're going to start July 15th. I feel like in four to six weeks, I can get my fitness and my tennis game back to a pretty high level. So in the meantime, I'm just kind of being a dad doing fitness around the house, kind of keeping a decent base and then. I'd feel like the 6 weeks prior to when we're going to start I could ramp it up and hit and get and do fitness and and get back to where kind of my baseline was.
1: What about the serve? Cuz I always wonder with well the physical reality of what it takes to, you know, f- for you big guys to just keep that service motion fluid and flexible, uh, can you I mean presumably you're not out there hitting serves all the time so how how do you manage that?
2: You know, you just got to keep your rotator cuff strong. And when you go back out, you need to gradually get back into it. You know, hit 50 serves a day for three days, take a day off, then ramp it up to 75 serves and 100 serves and make sure you just really take care of your shoulder and arm to make sure that you're keeping it strong, keeping it safe. And that's really the most important thing. You know, for most guys, look, we have, like you said, John and I have good serves. Everyone's got their, their shots they hit. And as a professional, you should be able to find your rhythm and get your game back in a, in a couple of weeks. In my opinion, there, I've had times where I've been injured and haven't been able to play in three months. And you certainly don't forget how to play. You can go out and not hit a ball for 90 days as a professional and come back out that next day and hit a pretty good rally ball up and down the middle. And um, you know, it's as if nothing was, was lost. And then obviously you need to fine tune things, but all the professionals, men and women, we can take months off and, and, relatively quickly i think get back to a pretty high level as far as timing and match play
1: we've been talking with a few coaches i mean one of the things i think they're all wondering is how much everyone else is doing is there a little bit of that in in you in the back of your mind as well
2: there is a little bit but but kind of like i said i i have more of the mentality whether i start playing right now and practice hard for three straight months or i start in two months and practice hard for six weeks i feel like i'll be at the same spot in 90 days so i you know i am not worried about what other guys are doing and i honestly don't think most guys are are doing much as far as hitting tennis balls i mean it's it's tough to play tennis right now courts are closed it's hard to it's hard to buy tennis balls it's hard to find other people that want to play so i don't think guys are doing anything besides the occasional kind of hit here and there
1: is this all just making you appreciate tennis a bit more sam
2: Definitely. Uh, I mean, yeah. And for a guy like me, I'm I'm 32. I've, you know, who knows how many years I have left? Whether it's three, four, five, it's a huge bummer to miss out on a on a Wimbledon that you're not going to get back. And so, I'm looking forward to get back getting back out there. If if all of a sudden someone can snap their fingers and we can start tomorrow, and I haven't hit a ball in in three weeks, I don't I wouldn't care. And if late in the year we can play U.S. Open, French Open back to back, that would be fine with me. I just I just hope we get a chance to play, you know, at some point. I don't even care where it is or what surface it is or what the conditions are and I th- I think most guys would feel that way. We just whatever the circumstances are, I hope we get a chance to play this year and earlier, you know, rather earlier rather than later.
1: And are you getting I guess an earlier insight into all of these decisions perhaps through your work with the ATP Player Council? And how how, how does that all work how did how did you come to to be on the council
2: definitely I mean I was on the council in 2010 and 11 I believe and then I've been on it again the last couple years and it's it's been great I've really enjoyed my time and right now it's it's especially great just we have Roger Rafa and Novak on the council and you know so it's great to have the input of them and and yeah we've been having I would say a call every 10 days to two weeks and just kind of getting an update from whoever that is, whether that's Andrea or Massimo or Ross Hutchins, just kind of what they were, what they're thinking and, and kind of asking for our input. And then, um, you know, that information is then kind of relayed to the, the rest of the guys on tour a day later or so. But it's, it's great to be able to give my input and, and share my thoughts and kind of, you know, be the, be on the forefront of what's going on.
1: Is it always a call between you guys or, or just sometimes do you, do you meet and sit down around a table? I mean, t- take us into the room. How does it work? Does Novak sort of wear a tie at the top of the table and sort of make, make a speech to start? How, how, does it, how does it normally work?
2: Normally it works that we would probably meet seven times a year at, you know, Australian Open, Indian Wells, maybe Monte Carlo, Toronto, US Open, Shanghai, Paris. And you would go into a, a boardroom at whatever the kind of the either at the at the tournament side or at a hotel. And you'd have the 10 players or three reps, which are David Edges, Alex Inglot. And now it's Mark Knowles. And then you'd also have Andre in there and Massimo and Ross and a handful of staff from the HP tour. And you discuss for two hours and there's a, an agenda that's put out and and usually sent to you the day before so you can go over things. And it's a really great kind of open discussion and And so that's how it usually works out. And then we also have a, you know, a group kind of text if we need to go over things during the year. But, you know, the last few, obviously, we're all living in different places and we can't meet face to face. So it's just either been on a a Zoom conference or just over the phone. What topics usually come up the most? Prize money is always a big one. But we're, we're constantly talking about rule changes or how points can work or how the entry system can work or how we can, you know, maybe... Extend the pension or add pension for more players. It's kind of different every time, you know, based on what's going on. Sometimes tournaments are requesting to move dates and things like that. So, um, you know, the the board and our player reps do a great job of siphoning through things and kind of giving us, all right, this is what we think. Let's get your guys' thoughts. That way we don't waste too much time going over a lot of the fine details.
1: It was really interesting talking with Andrea Gaudenzi, the ATP chairman, um, recently. And he, he's really surprisingly in a way keen to almost to unify tennis in a way that he doesn't think uh, it, it's being unified in the past um, because he just thinks that it needs to happen in order to compete as best as tennis can with you know the other sports out there or the other entertainment platforms and products out there. D- what do you what do you think about that? And and by that I mean, I, I guess initially he's talking about men's and women's, but also ATP and the Slams and everything. You know, is it achievable? Does it feel achievable?
2: Right. I mean, without going into too much detail, like I've been so impressed with him, and and I agree with kind of what he's saying. I think it's going to be very tough to get everyone on the same page, but he seems like a guy that can do it. He's been very. He's only been on the job for four months, and he's obviously dealing with something difficult right now. But he's been very proactive, I mean, constantly talking with the ITF, with the slams, with the WTA, and trying to bring everyone together, like you're saying. And I, you know, I'm an optimist, and I believe he can do it. Whether that happens in six months, a year, two years, three years, I'm not really sure. But um, I think he's, he's on to something, and I think it's a, a great plan that he has.
1: Just as a player on, on that, um, what are the benefits, but also the challenges of playing in a co-sanctioned event?
2: You know, there's pros and cons everywhere. Obviously, you've got double the amount of people. So depending upon the venue, you know, you've only got a certain number of courts. So that's the obvious problem that you might have to practice offside or find alternate solutions for that. You might have to sacrifice playing on some of the better courts and play later into the night or or start earlier in the day. You know, but, but really outside of just kind of doubling the amount of people, there's not a ton of of cons as long as that brings in if that brings in more fans and more prize money and and more recognition all in all I think it's a pretty positive thing
1: I know you did manage to sneak in a bit of world team tennis um, action before the season halted I I think you did anyway tell us more it was a celebrity event with lots of players and but for listeners in Europe perhaps or anywhere other than the states who might not be familiar with world team tennis can, can you just explain first a little bit what it is
2: yeah, so World Team Tennis, it's a it's a league during the summer. It's about three weeks long in July in the U.S., and I think currently there's eight or nine teams in Las Vegas, San Diego, Orange County, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, Orlando, a few other places. Each team's got about five players, and it's men and women. And so the, the way the format works is there's men's singles, women's singles, women's doubles, men's doubles, and mixed doubles and you add up, you play first to five, no ad scoring, and ultimately you add up all the games and whoever has the most games at the end of the day wins. But there are kind of different fun rules during it. You play lets if you're playing doubles and they're serving to your opponent and there's a let, you can run over and, and get the serve if you want. You can call substitutions and sub players out. There's timeouts and it just, it's really entertaining. They play music in between points. You know, your whole team's sitting on the bench, so it is so much fun. and um, you know, it's it's just a quick little season. You play about fourteen matches in twenty one days, so there's a, a little bit of travel involved. but so that's what it is. and the and the event that I was playing in was right before Indian Wells. It was like the world team tennis all-star event. And they just kind of got some of the players that had played uh, world team tennis in the past, myself, the Brian Brothers, Madison Keys brian harrison james blake maria sharapova taylor townsend and it was just kind of an event to get people excited about world team tennis say hey this is our this is our product it's really fun um this is kind of like a little all-star event the season starts in in four months but this is just a little tease of what's going to happen and it was it was really fun and we had a sold-out crowd i think there was about three thousand people there and all in all the event was great what does it feel like to play in that sort of thing it's really fun. I mean, tennis is, in, it's an individual sport all year long. And so to get to be on a team for, for two weeks and travel around is great and you, and you feel real pressure, you know, cause you're not only playing for yourself, it, even though it's, it's kind of a short little league and it's maybe not as important as, as grand slams and master series, you feel real pressure to win for your team and for your teammates. And, um, you know, everyone that plays it seems to love it. People, you know, if it's their first year playing it, they, they, they kind of leave and say, oh, my gosh, you know, I had so much fun and I, I kind of became close with some teammates, men and women, that I never really talked with in the past. And, you know, it just, it's just different to get out of the routine of singles, double, you know, a, a normal tournament, city to city. This is just, boom, kind of quick one-night events with, with your team traveling around. It's it's great.
1: If Andrea Gaudenzi and, and Massimo and everyone at the, I guess, in the political, you know, echelons of the game are putting all of the cards on the table right now and saying, right, how can we safeguard tennis? How can we make tennis better for the future? Is it beyond the realms of possibility that something like that concept could be expanded and brought more onto the tour?
2: It could be. I know they tried something similar in that with that Indian Tennis League a few years ago that that didn't necessarily take off, but there was a time that world team tennis was huge and they had the best players in the world playing it, um, you know, back in the seventies the and eighties, uh, um, especially. And so, yeah, there is room for it, whether it's something that would be all season long or something that is just still a short season, but can attract some of the best players in the world. I, I, I definitely think it can be done. And, and this year there's a, um, you know, I think the winning team gets a half a million dollar bonus. And so, they're really trying to incentivize players and they're doing a great job of making it better and better every year. When you sit and
1: watch tennis now if if you do sit and watch much tennis um do you you know having played in something like that and you know taken in the music and all the extra vibe around it how much do you think tennis can change as a product as a TV product? I mean I I've got a 12-year-old and he's sitting here and he probably wouldn't necessarily choose to watch a whole game of tennis because it's potentially two three hours of his life that he doesn't want to give to watching any one thing for that long how much scope is there to change you know the the format and stuff
2: I think there's a lot I'm, I'm someone who's always I lean more toward let's try all these things let's try to change the format let's try to switch up the rules see how it works and if it doesn't go back to how it was but I would be all for kind of more of the doubles format we play where you play no ad scoring third set tiebreakers you know maybe even take tournaments that were seven days and move them to five days taking out the five minute warm-up just go out on the court and go anything to speed up the game i think this day and age is important people's uh you know their their time is valuable and people are busy so you want to get your product boom you want to get it out there you want to get it going you want to keep it to a what a you know a, a time frame that people can keep their attention so I would definitely be in favor of at least trying moves like that.
1: It's tricky, isn't it? Because my next question almost demands a, a um, I don't know, but it, it's like the opposite. Um, because if I ask you which events you're missing the most and which cancellations this year have kind of affected you the most and you know which events you're looking forward to getting back out there, it's probably going to be the most traditional ones, isn't it? and the ones that have been around for the longest, the Wimbledons and, and the Indian Wells. Which ones which, which events have sort of tugged at the heartstrings a little bit more than the others this year?
2: Right. I mean' it's the, it's the two that you just mentioned and, and obviously some events are not canceled yet, but of the ones that are canceled, look, Wimbledon's a blow. that's my favorite tournament of the year. that's like the Masters of golf. there's just you know that's, that's the, probably the most recognizable tennis event in the world. And so that one stings Um, as does Indian Wells in Miami, two big master series in the U S those are always fun events to play. I love playing those. Um, And then uh, Houston's another one. Uh, The clay court event in Houston is one of the best tournaments of the year. It's so much fun. I mean, especially as an American, the crowd gets behind you. It's played an amazing river Oaks country club and, That's just always kind of one of the more underrated tournaments during the year. When people ask, like, what what are the best tournaments to go to or play at? Houston is always, like, on the top of my list.
1: And what's your favorite tournament that you've played? Do you think back to a a specific win and a trophy lift? Or is it one that you perhaps haven't won yet?
2: Gosh, it's you know, there's probably a couple. I mean, Wimbledon, just always playing it is fun. and, And getting to play on center court and having some of the big wins I've had there has been great. Uh, winning Acapulco was really, really special and, you know, being able to beat Rafa in the finals made it that much better. And then back in the day when the, there was a tournament in Los Angeles at UCLA, just because I kind of grew up here, winning that a few times was always special just because all my friends and all my family used to get to come out, not for just finals matches, but for first round matches. So I just felt like, you know, it was fun to play in front of them every night. Top
1: fifty right now. As I said before, you've been as high as eleven, I'm knocking right on the on the door of the top ten. What's still on the to-do list? Because I mean, you, you said it yourself. You're thirty-two, which you know is still relatively young in tennis terms these days, isn't it?
2: Yeah. You know, I look. I don't really have a to-do list or a, a specific goal. I want to just kind of stay relevant. I don't really have a ranking on it. I want to just make sure I'm in all the tournaments I want to play. I, You know, I definitely want to be stay in the top 50, but I I would like to be higher than that because as long as I feel like I can get into Master Series and get into Grand Slams, I feel like I have a lot of upside in my game. I feel like I'm someone who at any given time, if things are clicking and rolling, like I can beat anyone in the world and I can win some big tournaments and win big matches. So as long as I'm just giving myself those opportunities, I'm going to be pretty happy.
1: When the lockdown's lifted, Sam, what's the first place you're going to go to?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, You know what? I don't even care. I just get in my car and (laughs) I'll go to any restaurant or any event. I'll go watch a bad movie at a movie theater. I'll go. It doesn't even matter. Our thanks to Sam Query.
1: And if you enjoyed that chat with Sam, you should also check out the recent podcasts we've done with Jamie Delgado, Andy Murray's coach, legendary coach and commentator, Paul Anacone. ATP chairman Andrea Gaudenzi, Thomas Johansson, the former Australian Open champion who's now David Goffan's coach and most recently, the Mutua Madrid Open tournament director, world number 56, Feliciano Lopez. He is a very busy man. He joined us this week for another podcast special about the virtual esports tournament that he is helping put on, which many of the world's top players are at home practising for. Listen to how... He's had to ship a whole load of Sony Playstations to some of the players so they can simply practice and then take part in that. From the 27th to the 30th of April, so keep your eyes peeled for that as well. All of those interviews are available by searching for ATP Tennis Radio Podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify and TuneIn. Next up though, ATP Uncovered have spent some time with another member of the ATP Player Council, who was playing some great tennis before play ground to a halt. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. podcast. Vashik Pospisil is enjoying a remarkable return to form. The Canadian is back inside the top 100, went all the way to the singles final in Montpellier and won the doubles in Marseille with Nicolas Mahou. Vashik is back.
0: Felt really good. The last few months, I've had pretty good results, and, and they're you know came quite unexpectedly. To be honest, I just wanted to finish 2019 healthy. wasn't looking for any results, and so they came you know a lot sooner than, than expected and planned. And, and uh, you know making my first final in five or six years was really special. So, so you know worked, worked really hard, and feel like my my game's uh, going on, on the right track right now. I'm pretty ambitious, and obviously, I, 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 you know, still want to accomplish more things in this sport if I can, obviously. And I, I feel like, the, you know, the last eight months or so, I've been really, you know, training the the right way, uh, working on my game the right way, and working on on my strengths. Feel like I'm playing the best tennis that I've played in the last five five or six years. Since I was in the top 30, 50, you know, for for three years or so, I was. Relatively consistent there, and felt like I maybe lost my way a little bit the last um, four or four years or so. And I think right now, you know, I'm moving as good as I've moved uh, on the court. My court coverage is back to where it was when I was when I was playing uh, my best, and you know, with that, you know, kind of everything, in my, my game kind of shapes itself nicely. And and uh, yeah, so just put a lot of good work in with with the team and Frank. You know, has been doing an incredible job with me since we started and. Yeah, last summer, so uh, yeah, things are going on the right track. It's amazing to see him come back from the surgery, I mean you see the pictures and obviously I've spoken to him during and after and and you know even now it's it's amazing to see how his mindset has changed from, from kind of being frustrated and, and down to, to getting positive to, to being you know healthier again and going back to, to playing this well, you know when I played him I told him listen like I mean you just played too good today, and, and just keep it up. And I told my team, you know, he has a great chance to to go deep in the tournament. And surely enough, he made the finals. Definitely could have could have taken the title, but it's uh, it's great to see him doing well, and uh, it's great to see him having a, a good relationship with Frank. Yeah, I really feel that that as a team they could they can really go far together. The thing is, when you have surgery for the first time, it was my first surgery, and obviously it was lower back surgery, so it wasn't you know, walk in the park. I wasn't quite sure if I was going to reach the high level again. I wasn't sure how my body was going to respond. I never had surgery, so there were tons of question marks. Will I ever be able to play or move well? I didn't know, and then obviously I wanted to. It was still my goal. I was always uh, going to give it full effort when I came back, and I was optimistic, but I didn't know how the surgery was gonna go either, before I went, you know, under the knife, and didn't know how it was gonna turn out, and in the end, everything was great, but I, you know, even during that whole recovery process I, I kind of got my feet wet in a lot of different things and not knowing how the tennis was gonna go and I think that kinda of helped help the whole process and even and now even, you know, with with the results, kinda of picking up again and and playing at a high level, I'm just as happy and comfortable knowing that, that I have a lot of things I'll do after tennis. So I'm uh, I'm in a good spot right now in my life. I feel like the, the injury was a blessing in disguise. I kinda of feel like During that period I was able to kind of find a nice balance socially at home, even even kind of you know life after tennis, and I just feel much more comfortable in my in my skin and and I'm more relaxed on the court I think. Of course, you know when you come back you there there's less expectations so naturally you'll be a little bit more relaxed, but but even even so, I mean even now I've been playing well for four months and I'm not putting that much pressure on myself which which I think is is helping me in this case. Honestly right now I think I've found a really, really nice balance where I'm still working really hard and, and I'm you know driven and ambitious and I have my, my, my vision in tennis, but I also have a lot of things outside of tennis now that, that maybe I didn't have in, in previous years and I think that relieves a bit of, of mental mental stress on, on your profession and I feel like right now I'm I feel like if I stop playing Today, that I'll be totally fine. I know exactly what I want to do after my career. i am be very happy uh, at home right now. And I think that that's probably helping me on the court. I think it definitely is. And obviously, I don't want to stop now. That's not the plan. You know, I want to play for, for a few more years for sure. And I try to get up there and, and try to break new ranking career highs. But I think that kind of that security of knowing what I want to do after tennis kind of just helps the whole journey a little bit. I have a few things in mind and and, uh, started working on a few things as well, so we'll see what happens. But i got a few years, so no rush yet.
1: (laughs) And Vasek can also be found co-hosting the new weekly Tennis United show with WTA player Bethany Matek-Sands. That is packed full of player chats and social posts, glimpses at life behind the scenes with the players. And you can find a new show on the ATP and WTA websites and on YouTube every Friday. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio podcast.
3: If somebody would have told me that I would have had seven match points on Roger in the quarters of Australia while I was playing Challengers, and I didn't win, I would have been so gosh darn upset with myself. (laughs) So I don't know if that's the best. In quarters of Australia, yes, but the seven match points thing, I don't know if that would have helped me that much at the time.
1: Although he was on the wrong side of tennis history earlier this year at the Aussie Open, 28-year-old Tennis Sangren has plenty to be proud of. His battle into the world's top 100 has been a journey like no other.
3: I didn't win an A2 match until I was 26 years old. Didn't make a Grand Slam main draw until around that same time, you know, and top 100 as well. So it's like, wasn't hitting those markers young, just kind of feeling like, is my game good enough? It's a lot. I mean, it's a tough, tough gig, you know, it's a tough road. And there's a lot of really good players and you got to put in your time to get better and improve. Unless you have those big results early, you got to work and try and keep getting better as a player and keep improving and figuring out where you can you know, make gains. While those results aren't coming in, it's well, it's either work hard or, or give up. It felt like I'd already invested so much of my time into tennis in 20-some years that I'm probably as good at this as I'm for sure ever going to be at anything else, so I might as well stick it out and keep training hard and keep working and give it my best shot and and just see what happens.
2: Please welcome Cam Norrie and Tennis Sandgren!
1: All that hard work finally paid off in Auckland last year. was Sangren's first ATP title and a defining moment for a man who three years earlier had been outside the world's top 250. Coach Michael Russell and, first of all, former world number 15, Robbie Ginepri
2: I think his determination when he steps on the court is one of his most impressive uh, assets out there. It's good to, to see someone like tennis who's uh, been up and down to uh, get to where he belongs.
0: It's the old adage, you're kind of the line in the jungle, searching for food. And, you know, tennis did that for a while. And I think that's made him a hungrier player today.
3: You know, once you start feeling like you should be there and the guy on the other side of the net isn't better than you in any way, it becomes easier to, to believe in yourself at that point. Before you can get there, it's it a little tricky, it's a little challenging, but, but once you start breaking those kind of mental barriers, then it becomes easier and easier.
1: And he's also worked hard on the physical side of the game.
2: Tennis uh, prides himself in fitness. He does a lot off court to get himself match ready and to hang with the big boys. You gotta be able to run four or five hours and tennis has showed that in some pretty hot, rough conditions. I think he takes a lot of pride in that and that carries over onto on the tennis court. Miami tournament
1: director and former world number four, James Blake.
2: It just speaks to the fact that he, he loves the game. He's got, um, got something inside him where he really wants to succeed and uh, to be able to do that is something that's very impressive. Talk a lot about people that made it when they were 17, 18, 19 years old, and you could see the talent, and you could see them you know, going on a pretty straightforward path. And for him, it was a longer road, but I would guess he appreciates it so much more than a lot of others because of that long journey to get towards where he is now.
3: You only have appreciation for the good times, knowing that you know, there was struggle at some point. So it's hard to know exactly what a good moment is if you haven't had some tough ones and so i've had plenty of tough moments on and off the court and, and so every time i have a good one you know it, it definitely feels a little bit sweeter
0: this doesn't take anything for granted you know he, he knows adversity he's still working on dealing with it just like all tennis players it's not easy when you're the only one on court and there's so many variables but playing through the challengers coming through and really having to work everything through himself all those years and finding new ways to elevate his game, his fitness, his nutrition, and having the team around him now to help support him has really benefited.
3: As things have progressed and as I've gotten better and played against a lot of these guys, I feel like getting top 30, top 20, maybe even top 10 is is a realistic goal for me, and so that's what I'm shooting for.
1: is it for this week join us next Sunday when we'll be hearing from Karen Hatchinoff's new coach the one and only Freddie Rosengren and we'll hear about the work doubles player Isam Qureshi is doing in Pakistan to combat COVID-19 if you're enjoying the podcast don't forget to tell your friends about it give us a review on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app lots more to come next week for now though from me Seb Lozier stay home and stay safe
0: If you like this podcast,
1: please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review, review.